Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we're going to be talking about women in the Mexican-American War with Professor Marquez. All right. I'm in. Let's see ya. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 32, Racism and the Women of the Mexican-American War. Whoa, okay. Yeah, Brooke, I'm so excited to talk about this history. It's one of my favorite parts. Well, it's a horrible history, but... I was going to say, I was like, Kels, take a bag of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's such important history, and so therefore it's one of my favorite bits of history to teach. Um, And this week I had a chance to speak with Dr. Coney Marquez, who is a professor of history from Mexico. And um, I am so grateful to have had the chance to speak with her. She's also a listener to our podcast, which makes me feel like she's an extra special guest. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Every time we we hear someone listens to our podcast, we're like, we're not just talking to ourselves. And then we hear from our audience and we're like, oh, yeah, people actually listen to this thing. (laughs) Okay, good to know. (laughs) I know. It is funny because we know the numbers of people that are listening yeah but we don't have any info on like who that is so hey if you're out there tell us who you are (laughs) I know I was thinking about that the other day like I really want to hear from people that like are struggling to include a topic in their classroom and like what they might want some thoughts around or like maybe we could find an expert that knows that I don't know just a thought Absolutely. Right or just in. like somebody who's like, I feel like I didn't learn anything in history, so help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And and what do you yeah, what are you curious about? So oh my gosh, um yeah. Cody Marquez is a fascinating person. Anyway, I, I let me just let her introduce herself because she's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> awesome. Here she is. Okay, well, I am a Mexican scholar. I, uh, my name, uh, I have two names, an American name and a Mexican name. Uh, my name for American audiences, it's Connie Marquez. And for Mexican audiences, an official name is Maria Concepcion Marquez Sandoval. In Mexico and in Latin America, we have two last names from father and mother and usually two names, although some people like famous Mexican artist Diego Rivera named by Diego because he had like 11 names. Anyway, uh, I'm uh, inadequate with my with my couple names. <laughs> yes. And, and sometimes I have to 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 write something like a fill out a paper form or whatever. And it's not enough space for my whole four numbers. I mean, names. So it's been difficult. (laughs) Anyway, Connie Marquez, and I have a PhD from the University of Arizona. And it's interesting because even though I am a Mexican-born historian, I moved to the USA, applied for a doctorate program in the USA, because a lot of Mexican history can be written with the marvelous resources, archival sources, library And faculty, I mean, academic, that are very, very um, important with the study of Mexico. And being abroad gave me a well different perspective from my, from the history of my country. Hmm. So a lot of people like my brother said, how come you go to the USA to study Mexican history? You should be in Mexico. And I say, well... You don't know about the archives and all the resources and the methodology and the quality and the demand of a program. And the UFA, um, it's highly ranked in Mexican studies, mm-hmm. uh, I guess has to do that we're 45 minutes away from Nogales, Mexico, in the border of Sonora. So definitely um, there was a, it was a great experience. And I... I wanted to 
go to the USA to get methodology and resources for my own country. I mean, which is my research. I specialized. I'm a Mexican who specialized in Mexico. How fun. <laughs> We're all branching out. But I, I would be remiss to say Arizona was once part of Mexico. And yeah. so, so you, you haven't really left your country. <laughs> right. But a lot of people, especially La Migra, you know, the immigration officers, they forget about that and they actually <laughs> enforce that. <laughs> yeah, I've been told in living in different parts of the USA, like, oh, you speak very fluent as a Mexican. And I was like, since when being of another nationality uh, prevents you from learning another language, a second language. Yeah. So, I don't know, a lot of uh, interesting reactions. And sometimes they even say, oh, you don't look like a Mexican. It's like, I need to be more brown or have feathers. And what, what do you mean by the imagining Mexico scholar? So Professor Marquez, actually, when I asked her a little bit about why she feels like this history isn't being taught, highlighted what I feel, which is people don't teach this war at all in general, and that's part of the problem. Um, and then, of course, women's history gets completely lost within there. But when I was asking her about this history specifically, she actually told me a little bit about problems with just teaching kind of minority histories or histories that, um, you know, maybe don't make the U.S. look good. Um, and the racism that she experienced being a woman of color teaching history at a college, uh, campus and, um, and, and how that racism, it can be a barrier to subjects being taught at all. Uh, well, in Mexico, we have the Minister of Education, which uh, determines very machiavellically and politically speaking the contents that are going to be taught in elementary school, in uh, junior high, high schools, and even uh, what a main major, uh, I mean, a, a college degree should have, the mm -hmm. contents although each university has the last saying on their, on their uh, course list. But um, I do believe these missing parts of reinterpretation has to do with uh, political interest, political uh, waves that determine if the USA has been predominantly white or it has been predominantly black. I mean, History, as all humanities, and I dare to say all human knowledge, is subject to a human hand. So, of course, if you look at the history of the USA, you have to understand that the history has been told according to the winners, but also according to the racial majority. So... It is impossible, when you look at the contents, I'm talking about college. I have no experience in high school. I've been only teaching in college uh, mm -hmm. in the U.S., uh, I mean, in the University of Arizona, and lastly in at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Um, when you teach a survey class of history in college, which is usually when students are just beginning their college degree, uh, whether in the first, um, second semester, no more than the third year, I think. That's when they have to finish all the uh, hundreds and 200 courses. Um, students are welcome into parts of history that were never told in, in high school or junior high or previously before. And you are told which are the contents. Usually you are assigned a survey uh, textbook a survey history course textbook. And that's where you start seeing the gaps. And if you want to address them, sometimes depending on, on the department, you might have some freedom into choosing this or that. Let me tell you something. When we start talking about the migrations in the 1800s in, in USA 
and we talk about how white immigrants, mostly from Ireland, from Italy, from Russia, that arrived to the USA in the second half of the 1800s, we, we don't acknowledge that it was also a lot of Latinos. And they think about European migration, but there was the Chinese migration that was big, especially in California. And then you start seeing the, the diversity, the racial diversity in migration, even in the 1800s, because it's not a 20th century phenomenon at all. It started long time. And I got uh, one of the students actually in my class uh, said that why I was so uh, inclined in talking about minorities was it because I was a minority myself? And I say, listen, talking about USA history is talking about migration. It's not that you are saying more on one type of minority than others. And then my supervisor, the chief or the chair of the history department, um, she asked me, why, why don't you do a, a questionnaire on how do they feel in the class uh, if they're enjoying the class and some some sort of that? And I had some comments and I had several comments in leave your political agenda out of the classroom. And I was like, I don't think I have a political agenda by touching issues that are sensitive, such as migrations or in the case of Native Americans. And we were... In, in native land, I mean, the college was part of native lands that were taken away from the, it's very close to Mesa Verde National Park. It's like one hour or maybe more to Mesa Verde. And we are in native land and I, I, I have a political agenda. I get into what history is, which is like, the facts that you present are your bias, right? Like, like you, if you choose to ignore the, the stories of minorities or queer people or whatever uh -huh. like you're mentioning, you're, you're, that's your bias, right? Like that is bias. And we're, we've just accepted that, you know, white bias, you know, and I, I wouldn't like, you know, that you were talking about in, in your experience um, yes. as, the non-bias bias or something. I mean, it was impossible. It was impossible because yeah. students see you and they say, oh, she does gender history because she's a woman. Right. And let me tell you something. This is real from the college I was teaching on. The, they teach um, queer history. Uh, no, masculinity is called. It's masculinity. And the professor who teaches... It's an open uh, gay professor. And he said that once one student after class, a girl asked him, so why are you teaching a masculinity class if you're gay? And he said, well, besides my personal sexual preferences, I do have an education and I'm a professional. So being gay does not disqualify me to teach masculinity, a masculinity seminar. It's a social construction. That's so, so weird. That, that's such a like deep misunderstanding of what being gay is, first of all. Exactly, exactly. All, like, you or I could teach a course on masculinity. Like, <laughs> like it doesn't, you don't have to be a man. <laughs> And I've been told, oh, so you do women in military because you're a woman. And I say, like, yeah, but I've never been in the military. <laughs> you know, it, it has nothing to do with my with my sex. You know, it's and it's the same case when you teach history and you touch upon sensitive racial topics, such as, for example, Jim Crow, the moment of the enforcement of Jim Crow laws in mm -hmm. the deep south and all in the South, actually in, in all the USA. Um, and let me tell you something. I've, been, I've seen pictures 
from the late 1800s shot in Tucson, Arizona, when they were ads um, in, in stores or in diners that says uh, Mexican dogs and blacks this side. They, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so Jim Crow affected also Mexicans. They say, oh, you're so showing that because you're a Mexican. And I'm like, yes, I am a Mexican, but this is history. Right, right. It's difficult, oh, Kelsey. So do you see survey courses as the problem? Or do you see sort of like racism, even at the college level? Do you think that's what's sort of blocking these stories? Yes, I think both. Okay. Uh, because survey classes uh, are already approved for the contents. Uh, they are, for most students, the first step into a college class because they're usually, you have to take them in your early years uh, at college. So they do have a content in which it's not possible to teach a survey course without talking on the civil war, for example, or the American independence. Mm -hmm. it, it just, you have to. Right. You have to let students know and remember from their high school years, history is full of sensitive topics. And sadly, it has to do with who is teaching those. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. But more importantly, patrons are putting their money where their mouth is and making a financial commitment to getting women's history into the K-12 curriculum. We are so grateful to our patrons who sponsored this episode. Our history makers, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Brooke and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie and Kent. And our allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Thank you. You guys make this show possible. So I asked her to speak to us today about uh, the Mexican-American War, and I'm hoping that she'll come back at a later date and teach us a little bit about other things as well um, related to women in Mexican history. Um, but she is just so fascinating. But Brooke, have you ever heard of the Mexican-American War? Of course not, Kelsey. Let's be real. <laughs> well, so I, I'm not saying that to like pick on you, but I think that it's a war that none of us learned about in school. This isn't like of, the Alamo, is it? So kind of, but it's after the Alamo. Oh. And um, it's totally overlooked in American history classes. And in fact, most American history textbooks up until probably recently, and even if you look at like a map of U.S. land acquisitions over, mm -hmm. you know, over westward expansion... Most of those maps will label, you know, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, all these all these states that are, are part of the United States today. They will label those as acquired during Mexican session. The word session meaning like to cede land, to okay. give it up, right, um, is just so inaccurate there was an entire war fought for that land. And it was a pretty horrible war fought for that land. And so for textbooks to represent it that way and even maps to represent, and don't, yeah, geographers, you're not out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. In some cases, this war is not even called a war. It's called the Mexican Secession like when you seed something, most of the times you think I'm seeding, I'm generous. 
But this was not a cessation, man. This was a twisting your arm and sign a treaty to have more than half of Mexico's territory. I really like teaching about this war in class because it, you know, when we talk about imperialism, I think a lot of people think about maybe Native Americans, but I I think most Americans probably also think about like the Spanish-American War right. and the yeah. Philippine-American War, but they probably think like British Empire and they don't think about Mexico. But yeah, it doesn't, this, it's not the immediate thing that comes to mind. But I'm curious, like, how large this war was, like, how many people were involved, how did it start, all the things. Yeah. So um, one of the best resources <laughs> for learning about this war that I have found, in, because it does such a good job of including primary sources, um, and really I feel like giving you a much fuller picture than most textbooks do, is Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States. Okay. And... Chapter eight, uh, which is titled, he, all of his titles are are kind of ironic titles. So chapter okay. eight is titled, um, "We Take Nothing by Conquest, Thank God," and <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. Very They're clever. always pulled from a quote um, that he'll include later on in the chapter, um, and I think it gives you a really, really great, great picture. Um, the Stanford History Education Group also has really great. Um, inquiry primary source analysis lesson plans on the Mexican-American War and the Texas Revolution. And so you mentioned the Alamo, so let's go there and make the connection for you. So um, the territory of Texas is, is part of Mexico. It's a, it's a territory within the, in Mexico. Okay. And um, many white, and actually the Mexican people that live there are advertising to um, Americans to come move into Texas. And so they do, and lots of um, Texans move west. And part of that, or sorry, many Americans move west to live in Texas. Part of the deal when Americans move into Mexican territory, into Texas, is they are agreeing to follow Mexican laws. They are agreeing to convert to Catholicism. They are agreeing to not own slaves, which many of the people moving into Texas are moving from the southern portion of the United States. And so that was kind of problematic for them. Um, and the they're also not able to participate in the government. And so a lot of the things that these Americans might take for granted in the U.S., like freedom of religion and, um, you know, being able to vote, like the men mm -hmm. being able to vote, um, they lose when they move into Mexican territory. And um, by the 1830s, it's something like 10 to 1 Americans to Mexicans. And so this is really rule by minority um, in Texas. And so the Texas Revolution, which is a war really to, uh, to, to have independence from Mexico and, um, you know, it's, it really people remember the Alamo, right? And, yeah. and they, they don't forget that. Um, and everybody who was there died. And then Sam Houston, you know, sort of leads the charge in winning this war and solidifying Texas as it's as an independent country. But that's really like phase one of acquiring most of the Southwest of the United States, modern day Southwest. Okay. To talk about the Mexican women who participated in the war, we have to understand first the U.S.-Mexican war. In Mexico, when we study that uh, period of history, which lasted officially a few years, from 1846 to 1848, uh, I mean, it's not a lot, as you can think in historical terms. There, There's two years. It's a short-lived war, if you want. But the effects are long-lasting because California was part of Mexico is now the U.S. I mean, pretty much all the Southwest. So even today, the last few short time, but it was so influential that gave the U.S. like a lot of their territory, 
especially the Southwest. And in Mexico, Mexico lost half, half of its territory. So in Mexico, when we study this war, we call it USA invasion. <laughs> so that's a different, when you say USA war, you think about, well, two countries fighting on kind of equal circumstances to two countries that fought uh, in a war. But when you talk about invasion, as we are, are taught that in Mexico, that's a different word. Yeah. It's not the same Probably word. Probably a bit more accurate. Uh, <laughs> if I say so, your, your listeners are going to say, of course she's going to say it's an invasion. She's a Mexican. But, but let's look at the facts. So it started as a private dispute, but it was fed to, by that time, what the USA uh, embodied, which was America for the Americans. USA was a few decades after its independence, and the USA was trying to gain a stellar place in the continent as uh, to get rid of the influence by European countries. So it had to do with uh, an awareness of America for the Americans and the manifest destiny in which these Americans in the, in the first half of the 1800s believed that it was a God-given mission for the white Anglos Americans to rule over the entire continent. And the manifest destiny was also to take over the lands of the natives, but to take over the lands of Mexico and the Spaniards in the case of Cuba. And it also had to do with the industrial expansion, the early years of the industrial revolution. Uh, and the land was needed. needed. And it just came in time for the golden rush, uh, the gold rush, I'm sorry, the gold rush in California, in which a vast, huge, and never before seen um, deposit, deposits, plural, of gold and other mineral resources were found. So this territory was needed for the manifest destiny, for the resources that even though they had no idea yet, they knew the land in California, the land is rich, good for agriculture. And it was the, uh, a moment in which the USA was eager to have more. So when talking about the war, we have to understand the context of what led the USA invade or send their troops to, the, to Mexico City. The war was fought in two fronts from uh, Texas going to Monterrey, Mexico, which is the third biggest city in Mexico that was captured very soon. And the other was by the sea. The, the contingent or, or the group of troops that took over Mexico City came, uh, arrived to Mexico from the sea. They went to the Gulf of Mexico and they enter Veracruz, the port of Veracruz. And from Veracruz, which is not that far from Mexico City, they went ahead and captured Mexico City and surrender the city. And later on, they start with the, with the treaties. So a, a short-lived officially war, but the war be, started before 1846. With this appropriation or manifest destiny, uh, that's also a political statement. Do you call it a manifest destiny or, like I call it, an appropriation destiny? <laughs> the Mexican-American War really starts because there is disputed territory. And um, as a result, so Texas is annexed by the United States, it's taken over, and... Um, the U.S. military moves in and sets up a uh, military base 
in um, southern Texas on Whoa. the Rio Grande. And this is disputed land. One of the officers takes a group of men and they're on patrol and they bump into Mexicans, Mexican soldiers that are also on patrol. And there's this skirmish and um, Thornton and some of his men are taken captive and other people die. And uh, this is what the United States uses as justification for starting this war. Well, and okay. um, that's something that I think is a really important thing when you're teaching about wars in American history. Is almost always the United States waits until there's some sort of incident to justify our involvement, whether it be Pearl Harbor or 9/11 or um, in this case, yeah, the like they need affair. a reason to get in the fight. Exactly. Um, so, um, so the Thornton affair sort of becomes the ultimate excuse, but what's, and I think one of the reasons, um, why this doesn't get taught very much in schools is because most of the primary sources, uh, do not make this look like an innocent endeavor, right? That the Thornton affair makes very clear that this was not really justified behavior. The telegrams that are being passed and messages that are being passed back to Washington to, to President Polk are, um, are condemning, right, of, of U.S. behavior. Um, Colonel Hitchcock, who wrote in his diary, even before some of these initial skirmishes, this is um, right out of Howard Zinn's book, he says, I have said from the first that the United States are the aggressor. We have not one particle of right to be here. It looks as if the government sent a small force on purpose to bring on a war, so as to have a pretext for taking California and as much of this country as it chooses. For whatever becomes of this enemy, there is no doubt of war between the United States and Mexico. My heart is not in this business, but as a military man, I am bound to execute orders. Whoa. Right? Like, yikes. Um, back here on the East Coast, um, some of the most wonderful writing is is happening. Um, are you familiar with Thoreau? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Thoreau I'm thinking of. Is it the correct one? <laughs> yes. Henry David or Harry David? Yes. So he, Henry David Thoreau, he lived in Concord, Massachusetts, <laughs> and during the Mexican-American War, he actually refused to pay his poll tax um, because he knew that that money was going to fund the government that was at war in this super unjust war. Um, so he gave a lecture called Resistance to Civil Government, which was then uh, reprinted as an essay called Civil Disobedience, and it was used by women suffragists, by Rosa Parks, by Martin Luther King, by everybody that follows. They basically took his, um, his bit that he wrote. Um, he later went to prison because he wasn't paying his taxes. <laughs> and, um, Emerson went and visited him and asked, what are you doing in there? And apparently Thoreau replied, what are you doing out there? And I oh. thought that was really interesting. So there's really cool history here from the Mexican-American War. And everything about this war is really important in understanding the civil war that follows. When you expand into the Southwest, when you expand into that territory, it raises questions about the expansion of slavery and everything that's happening. You know, if you're, you're moving your people and your culture westward, does slavery go with that? And abolitionists were staunchly opposed to this war because they saw this as the progression of slavery westward. Um, and then, of course, expansionists were in favor of this war because of all of the, the wealth that was out there. And, um, you know, it's interesting because this war gets overshadowed by the Civil War, but all of the major players in the Civil War, whether it be Jefferson Davis or Taylor or Grant, they all get their start in the Mexican-American War. But in a lot of cases, like most history related to war, it could be really easy to exclude women. And um, yeah, I right, can see like that. I've named a whole bunch of men here, and yeah, <laughs> not nice a job. lot of <laughs> not a lot of women. And so, um, where do they come in? Tell me about this. Yeah, so women come into this war 
in different ways depending on where we're talking about. So I'm going to start with America and let Coney Marquez tell you a little bit about Mexico. In the United States, basically women are either championing the war or they're really stepping outside social norms and they are serving as anti-war activists for basically the first time. And that's pretty uh, that's pretty interesting. So if they're championing the war, um, typically this is because they are sending off a loved one. Most people in the United States supported the war, and most women especially supported the war. And so in terms of uh, majorities and numbers of people, most women are supportive of the war effort, and probably because they don't have much choice in the matter. The war is happening. Politics is not their sphere. And um, The men in their lives are going, whether they like it or not. Um, So I think that is that is like kind of important context to have. Um, So they they sort of endorse it in spirit, as one historian um, said. That comes from the book Patriots, Prostitutes, and Spies, Women in the Mexican-American War by John M. Blalovec. And actually, this book is really interesting in terms of why is women's history often excluded. His book is, he talks about in his introduction, the first um, comprehensive book uh, talking about women in the Mexican-American War. So I think just the fact it's first, and it was published in 2017, so it's published recently, you know, women's that history hasn't really trickled down to those of us uh, not reading current scholarship so um so anyway that's a side note he talks about how with the passage of time uh increasingly um, greater numbers of women uh sort of question or challenge the war effort and he attributes that to uh loneliness and cynicism uh he says it envelops some of them um, which I think it, think is really interesting. Um, so, for example, um, most of the women that are patriotic and supportive of this war um, serve and, and contribute to the war effort really just by tending to the domestic and um, commercial responsibilities of the home, taking care of the farm, taking care of the children, um, and basically covering all the bases while their spouses or brothers or significant others are off at, at war. Um, Mrs. Bolton was selected uh, by the ladies of Indianapolis to uh, produce a handmade flag. And this was something that was copied around the country as different regiments are being sent off from different states to head to Mexico. And um, so she said in her speech as she was presenting the flag to the unit, you heard that your country was invaded. You heard her call to arms and simultaneously our hearts responded. It is my country and this army shall defend her. And I thought that was interesting that she was given the floor to speak as she turns over the the flag that she made to them. Um, she says... Um, In the flush of victory, forget not the uh, dictates of humanity and no unnecessary insult to a fallen foe. Let the world see that American soldiers are as generous as they are brave. And um, and I I just thought that that was interesting that she was... um, pushing sort of this like philosophy that really aligns with the role of women in that time as sort of this like moral figure. Um, so I think it's interesting, you know, women that are supportive of the war and, and, um, patriotic, um, championing the war effort, um, were honored in this time to craft flags to send them off. But I think as with almost every war in American history, this is a war that's happening really far away. And it's not really until the realities of this war starts to come back that, um, that women sort of begin to question it. And, you know, as coffins are coming home and people um, are losing significant others, I think that's when the reality is really set in. So one of the more hilarious primary sources that Bilalovic talks about in this book um, and references in this book is a letter from this one soldier's mom that was found on him when he died of dysentery in one of the camps. 
And, um, you know, you would think motherly love, right? But here is a patriotic champion of the war, and uh, she is sending off her son to battle. And she said she would sacrifice him at the cannon's mouth. That was a quote. Rather than uh, find that he had deserted the army. And um, she describes herself um, as a Spartan mother handing a shield to her son. And so she implored him to return it or return upon it. With it or upon it, end quote. And I read that three (laughs) times because I had to really process that. It was mostly the Whigs that were opposed to the war, and they were largely concentrated in the north, in New England. Um, Caroline Healy Dahl was a feminist from Boston, and um, she wrote a lot of critiques of the war. And um, like a lot of the Northeast who were abolitionist, uh, Northeasterners were really concerned about the spread of slavery to any new territories that were acquired. And so that gave them sort of skepticism of this war by an expansionist um, and a pro-slavery, you know, government. And... um, So she wrote for a women's rights magazine, Una, and um, was active in helping fugitive slaves escape to Canada. And so um, she wrote a piece titled The War, uh, in which she said, quote, no man with the least spark of true patriotism in his soul can look at the present condition of this country without shame, fear, and foreboding. Um, she says, uh, that in this campaign, the United States had killed women and children and they had, um, committed quote, outrages, which made, uh, which make men shudder at the recital, end quote. Um, so I think that is just really powerful. Um, and it's important to know that there were these voices of criticism, um, She wrote another essay called Thoughts on War, and um, in this one, she, and I'm going to use what um, Bilalovic wrote here. He said, Dahl remarked how easy it had been for Americans to live their daily lives, giving little thought to the events transpiring in Mexico until they were reminded by the horrific bombardment of civilians in Veracruz. War has, wars have been fought, she mused, over ideas, religion, and land. What could be said of this dispute in which neither side held the high moral ground? She cared not how much the war cost. What if the millions of dollars had been spent, uh, had been spread over Mexico to dispatch Protestant missionaries to assist in strengthening Republican government and providing education? More importantly, she challenged readers not to blame the government Um, for the slaughter, but to accept personal responsibility for supporting the war. As for the veterans, comma, quote, American woman, what think you of the horrid crimes inseparable from war committed by husbands and brothers whom you and I have loved in the Mexican campaign? Can you offer your flushed cheeks an ineffectionate welcome of brutes and ravishes from their abandoned life? End quote. And then he continues, better for the men to die on the field, she declared, than to return to the women who loved them. Quote, with the stamp of excess, of vice on the bloated brow and passionate lip. End quote. He said, Dahl could still accept the soldiers with broken limbs and mangled bodies, but... Quote, save us from encountering your depraved hearts, your reeling senses, the monuments of your dead souls. Woo! Right. But as always, American women were battling just simply the right to speak up about this. And um, people were not only hotly debating the war itself, but then debating the appropriateness of women engaging in the political sphere at all. And um, so women like her were assassinated in terms of their character um, in the press and, um, you know, and also just like demeaned and talked down to because like, who are they to know or speak on these types of issues? And that's that's really aggravating. And but I think the bigger picture here, though, is that women 
you know, were involved because they were anti-expansionists, they were pro-abolition, and this was a time period in which women are increasingly becoming involved in social causes in the United States. But whether women were in favor of the war or among the minority who were opposed to the war, it doesn't change the fact that the war was largely happening far away from them. And in most cases, they could pretend like it wasn't happening at all. Yeah. In the United States, the war is not coming to our backyard. It's going into Mexicans' backyards. Right. And so the women that we really should be talking about are Mexican women and how this war impacted them. So this is what she said. First of all, the the contingent of militaries, American militaries, they were officially, and this is the same for the whole women, mostly in the wars, except the First World War and then the Second World War, when they actually acknowledged more the participation of women, particularly as nurses, you know? But in the 18th century wars and before the colonial wars, even though women were helping as nurses and were helping as feeding the troops mostly, the women also, they were not recognized as official members of the army. Uh, I don't think there's a single woman in the Civil War, for example, that was awarded a pension as to serve in the, in the army during Civil War. I think Harriet Tubman. Yes, but not like part of a rank. Yeah. It was her participation, but she was not a sergeant. Mm -hmm. She was not a colonel Mm -hmm. or even a a private, right? They participated in the war, but they were not recognized as having a military rank. Mm -hmm. That's, That's what I'm saying. So it's the same in the USA Mexican War. Women were always there, especially as the troops. I mentioned that the troops arrived from the Mexican Gulf to Veracruz port, but also the other troops that went from Texas and other parts of of the USA in the Southwest. They concentrated in mostly in the state of uh, Nuevo Leon and Tamaulipas in the north of Mexico. And that's where they start descending. And that's where they had the main battles against the army of the dictator Santana, who is widely remembered in the USA for the Alamo, right? The billion of remember the Alamo. Well, that that guy who was a character and it's been it's a it was a pretty crazy guy. Can you believe this guy? Just to tell you the type of personality Santana Antonio Lopez de Santana was. He did a funeral and a monument to his leg. <laughs> he lost a leg in a battle and he was so so sad and mourning for his leg that he did a monument in Mexico City and an official military funeral just to bury his his leg. <laughs> anyway. <To reach> his own. <laughs> imagine, imagine. That says a lot about masculinity. What were we talking about before? <laughs> exactly. But imagine the type of personality that we're talking with this guy who lost the war with the USA, Santana, and who got revenge from Texans uh, with the Alamo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Santana was a pretty interesting. Mexico was recovering of the independence war. The country was in bankruptcy. Most 19th century Mexico went bankrupt which explains why Mexico could not fight against the powerful, mighty, powerful USA Army, uh, which was, of course, top in in rifles, in weapons, in strategies. I mean, it was Mexico won some battles, but most of the battles were, I mean, USA moved to Mexico City as a knife, as a butter knife. Easy, easy. Many populations welcome them. And I'm not saying 
Mexicans were traitor for welcoming the USA, but they saw them as, okay, they're here. We don't have weapons to fight them. Let them pass. Just make room for them. <laughs> That's the mm -hmm. truth. I mean, many Mexicans will not like this, perhaps. Eh? What is this historian saying that Mexico easily gave up to the USA? No, they were, they were battles. But in general, um, the superiority and also Mexico was having a very difficult time. Santana as a dictator uh, ruled Mexico, but the but still Mexico, there, there were many fractions fighting against. And that's why we had a U.S. invasion. Uh, then we have a French invasion. Then we had a French emperor. And it was until the last two decades of the 1800s that Mexico had peace. It was one war after another inside and outside Mexico. Uh, women were usually hired in wherever the, the troops were stationed at. They were usually stationed at the hills, at the valleys, you know, outside the cities because the cities were protected by the local army and the and the citizens of that land so they they faced the invasion from inside the towns right so the troops had to camp uh at the valleys outside right outside the cities although in some cases look, such as the city of Monterrey and Mexico City and others as well Uh, the American troops did occupy the cities and the towns. So they did, uh, many cases, they occupied the, the courthouses and uh, the, the places where the mayor had its, his office. So they used the entire administrative buildings. But in other cases, they will camp outside the towns. And that's where... Uh, we know of women who made their living out of cooking for the troops, whether Mexicans and whether Americans. It's really interesting the contrast between Mexican women and American women and how American women are encouraged to stay home, not participate in the war effort in any practical role. And um, it's not really until the Civil War that we see women following as nurses and other things. Um, so in Mexico, you know, these, these Mexican women are serving as soldaderas, which could be nurses, it could be laundresses, they represented sort of the shadow army. Um, Belalavec talks about how hundreds, sometimes thousands of wives, girlfriends, mothers, and sisters um, followed along, bringing their children, and they would trudge behind the troops. And he spends some time in his history of the Mexican-American War talking about how not only was this role incredibly critical, um, but it was also incredibly dangerous. And... Um, You know, the Mexican army is completely unprepared for this war. There's a lot of infighting. Most of the poor people that are fighting the war um, really don't have a lot of incentive to to engage in this war. And so, um, for example, on the eve of the battle at Buena Vista, where... Um, General Taylor is going to combat the Mexican army. Um, almost a quarter of the Mexicans don't show up the morning of the battle. And so this is just a bloodbath. Um, the uh, American soldiers, as they're marching through, just, you know, interacted with many of these Mexican women. And one of them, Samuel Chamberlain, um, described these women as he's walking through, you know, through the filth. There's dead bodies everywhere. Um, and he says that they found themselves surrounded by, um, quote, almost witch-like Uh, ladies that were there and he he described them as quote old 
bleary-eyed, skin a mass of wrinkles, the color of oak bark. A Mexican writer uh, talked a lot about how terrifying it was seeing women out on the battlefields. Um, He said, screaming women are back and forth like furies. And he described how horrible it was to see the sight of dead women among the bodies of the men. And I think that's lost when we sort of forget that war happens in people's backyards. And um, the heroism of the Mexican women during this war was noted in the American press. Um, There was a letter that was written by a soldier on October 7th, 1846, and sent to the Louisville Courier, and then it was reprinted, and and, and, um, so it it saw wide readership across the United States. And so I'm going to read here um, from Professor Belalovic's page uh, 59. He said, the missive recounted the clash on September 21st and the actions of a young woman moving about the ground that evening, carrying bread and water to the wounded of both armies and binding their injuries with articles of her own clothing. She returned to her cottage and reappeared on the field later that evening to continue her mission of mercy. Then the soldier continued, quote, I heard the report of a gun and saw the poor innocent creature fall dead. I think it was an accidental shot that struck her. I would not be willing to believe otherwise. It made me sick at heart, and turning from the scene, I voluntarily raised my eyes toward the heaven and thought, Great God, and this is war. The next day her body still lay where it had fallen with the bread and a few drops of water in the gourd beside her. As the cannon shot and grape continued to fly around them, the American soldiers buried the angel of Monterey. End quote. Only a few months into the conflict, he continues, newspapers far and wide, large and small, recounted this tale of a woman's courage and the self-sacrifice under the headlines such as, quote, the horrors of war, a sad case. And, quote, a Mexican woman, her noble conduct and sad fate, end quote. Howard Zinn's book did mention women in the Mexican-American War, although briefly, and this being my first introduction to the war in general, I was really surprised to read about um, American soldiers raping Mexican women as they came into and bombarded cities, and it was a passing mention in one of his paragraphs in the chapter, and I was always curious if there was any validity to that and how widespread that sort of thing was, and I was excited, sort of, I guess not really, to corroborate this with um, Professor Belovic's work. He says... U.S. forces occupied a city. Officers employed locals to perform the basic domestic tasks of cooking and cleaning. Samuel Chamberlain of Massachusetts claimed that, quote, all the Americans quartered in town kept house with a good-looking senorita, end quote. Indeed, Chamberlain maintained a young married girl, uh, Carmelita Viejo de Moro, whose husband later had her raped and murdered for comporting with a Yankee. When an American doctor named Morton departed uh, Chihuahua, his mistress dressed as a man and followed him to his new home in Saltillo, uh, where he was observed living in his tent in the most public manner, end quote. So how do we define the image of these women, he asks. He said, are the terms collaborator, camp follower, and victim fair designations? I think that would make a really great inquiry, side note. Um, He says, many women interacted with Americans because of economic need or opportunism. They washed clothes and sold food to soldiers in the marketplace. In the minds of many Mexicans, such fraternization with the enemy, which perhaps also included providing female companionship, sparked predictable resentment. Assuming that every relationship between a Mexican girl and an American soldier had a sexual dimension would be highly presumptive, since engaging in questionable behavior with young Hispanic women would be taboo in both the Northern and the Southern society. Still, the line seems to have been crossed with disturbing ease. In this case, he is ascribing the rape, actually, to Mexicans on their own women um, for betraying Mexico. Um, So this doesn't exactly corroborate what Zinn said. Here's what Zinn said. Uh, An American soldier wrote, 
that General Lane told us to, quote, avenge the death of the gallant walker, to take all we could lay hands on, end quote. And well and fearfully was his mandate obeyed. Grog shops were broken open first, and then, maddened with liquor, every species of outrage was committed. Old women and girls were stripped of their clothing, and many suffered still greater outrages. Men were shot by the dozens, their property, churches, and stores, dwellings, houses were ransacked. Dead horses and men lay about pretty thick, while drunken soldiers yelling and screeching were breaking open houses and chasing some poor Mexicans who had abandoned their house and fled for life." Such a scene I never hope to see again. It gave me a lamentable view of human nature, and it made me, for the first time, ashamed of my country. So the raping and pillaging of Mexican cities is really a piece of this like history, and I think when we skip over it, we're skipping over some serious wrongs that American soldiers have done and in how we treat Mexicans well and anyone that we're at war with you know it's just not a that's if you don't talk about the hard things and you're glossing over history and we're trying not to do that yeah so um Dr. Marquez talked a little bit about this situation and she it's hard because the primary sources are scarce on this type of thing and um obviously when I read history, general history, and I see things about women, those pop out to me. And so I asked her, you know, was this corroborated in research that you've done? And this is what she said. You you will always hear is part of human nature, sadly, to commit this kind of, of crimes, especially in wars, to to prove that you're powerful, you go against the weaker people. And that has to do with None, uh, I mean, with women that had no weapon and had no protection on that. But they also took over properties. But I'm very pretty much sure that there were some acts, unspeakable, despicable acts such as that, as sadly to say it, those are normal or very much seen in all the world's at wars in all the history of the world. Yeah. The rape as a use of submission, as a use of showing who is the powerful to attack women uh, and attack weak population, right? It's kind of painful, to be honest, for me, because Mexico was kicked in the butt by the USA. That's the fact. That's the only way to explain why people sign up a treaty, the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty, uh, signed in 1848, actually became effective in May 30 of 1848, in which when you read the treaty, it's Mexico is, okay, get what you want. Some people say, well, the USA did pay for this war, 15 millions for Mexico's territory. They only pay that for a small portion uh, in 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 the area of today, uh, Arizona, but it was just a small fraction. The other, the rest was concede to the USA, right? Like California, Texas, that declare its own independence. I mean, other states. So I think the inclusion of women in talking about the Mexican-American War really helps bring the full picture to it to understand, like, when you see what's happening to Mexican women in this war, the U.S. soldiers no longer become innocent, right? They're not just... Well, they're not idealized and put out as heroes in the scenario where they got land back for America. You know, they did so at the cost of lives right. and not only and and soldiers dignity. but also yeah and dignity and grace and i mean i guess that's war in general it's not like it's going to be a, a but you can true always, act of kindness <laughs> in war you can always say you know the people on the other side are combatants and if i don't kill them they will kill me you know right sure. but when the the city's been taken and you're drunkenly raping Mexican women. It's I nuts. feel you've, you've lost, you've lost that. 
that you've argument. Lost sight of the purpose. Yeah. And you've lost sight. Uh, yeah. I mean, you ju- you've lost sight. And, um, and not that, you know, war is such a weird topic in general. Like, yeah. It's like, like what's okay. What's not okay. Yeah. But, um, but I think when you bring Mexican women into the story, it makes the picture of what the U S is doing much richer and, um, more horrifying. So I yeah. think that, um, the topic of the Mexican-American War really should be taught, and I think the topic in general is undertaught in schools. Um, I didn't learn about it until I became a teacher, until I read Zinn's book. And um, and so I think that there are there's so much primary source material there. So I've created a, a, an inquiry that includes these examples of what happened to women um, to help make this history a little bit more rich. And yeah. the question being, did Mexico cede their land? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a little embarrassed at how terrible my, I can't speak Spanish to save my life. <laughs> so I feel bad. It's funny talking about, you know, the racism you experience. And here we are having a, a interview about your history in English. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.